You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji-Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. Hi there. I'm back. I told you that it was going to be everything about food allergies today, and I brought on a, uh, a fabulous, fabulous guest today. Um, the reason why we're doing uh, this spot-on episode on food allergies is that I am hearing so much about this, and I dug a little bit deep into to the statistics here, and, you know, 32 million people have food allergies in the United States, and that is absolutely wild. And, and the, you know, you often say, oh, these are little kids that have food allergies. But no, what I found is over 20 million are adults. So this affects everybody through the life cycle. So I said, you know something, I am going to do a, a, a spot on episode on this. And I brought in um, the peanut RD. That's that's how she goes for it. I want to introduce you to my guest today. That's Sherry uh, Coleman Collins. She's a registered dietitian. And she has been communicating on food allergies for over 15 years. She is the guru in the nutrition world of who you go to um, if you want questions answered about food allergies. In fact, you know, I, you all know I'm a registered dietitian and, and Sherry is also, but she wrote the position paper for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics on food allergies. I told you, I went right to the top and I got the expert. So whenever we say food allergies, we say, Sherry, or really what we say is hashtag or at peanut RD. Isn't it hysterical? That's what, how you can get a hold of her on Twitter at peanut RD. And you basically, I hope you traded Mark, uh, trademark that Miss Sherry, because you are the food allergy specialist. So welcome to Spot On. Oh, thank you so much, Joan. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. So listen, how the heck did you get in? I mean, this is really a niche, you know, <laughs> poor expertise. God knows I don't have it. But how did you get into uh, this whole food allergy? Well, that's a great question. And, it, you know, just as you mentioned, it really is an issue that affects millions uh, of Americans. Yeah. So it feels niche, but the reality is this affects so many people. Um, in my career journey, you know, I started in clinical pediatrics at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and I worked in the IBD clinic, so inflammatory bowel disease. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those patients have uh, issues with food allergies or intolerances. So that was my first introduction mm -hmm. to food allergies um, from a clinical perspective. And I really enjoyed working with those patients so much because nutrition and food makes a huge difference. And I learned a ton from them and from the physicians and other experts that I worked with. And then after I did that for a while, I moved into school nutrition. And in school nutrition is a food service kind of environment and you're dealing with kids. And we definitely had to manage food allergies. So I learned about food allergy management from a completely different perspective, right? One is, you know, from the clinical perspective, teaching parents when they first got diagnosis, you know, teaching kids, teaching adults even if that was the case. And then from the food service side came in going, okay, now I know how important food allergies are in managing it is. Now, how can we do that in a food service environment and keep kids? I'm telling you, 
there's a special place in the world for you because you know something. Uh, I, there's one thing to talk to one to one to a child and the parents or or a caregivers, but it's another thing when you go and you're thinking about a food service environment where there's gazillion children that could have gazillion yeah. allergies and how to manage <laughs> all that. You're a better person than I. So I want to just start off by saying, what exactly is a food allergy? So people can understand what the heck is going on when people say, I have a food allergy and this is what, mm -hmm. what I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. So okay, tell us more. Well, you know, there are a lot of confusion around food allergies. A lot of people think foods, you know, certain things are food allergies that really aren't. When, when I talk about food allergies, I'm really talking about an IgE mediated, an immune system mediated food allergy. So a reaction that starts with the immune system that is in response to what should be a normal, safe protein, usually protein. There are some rare instances where other foods or substances in foods can cause reactions. And it causes the immune system to react and then to basically attack the protein. And by doing that, the body um, releases all kinds of chemicals and then it can cause um, any organ system to be involved. But most of the time, what we see is the skin involved, right? So hives is very common. And then things like... Um, uh, swelling in the mouth and the tongue, very common. If you think about that's where the food touches the body. Um, it can cause difficulty swallowing, um, swelling in the throat. It can cause a repetitive cough, which is a symptom some people don't realize, but sort of that feeling of something stuck in their throat. And oftentimes they'll try to cough it up, but it's really swelling that's happening. Um, if they have asthma, it can be very dangerous because it can actually induce an asthma reaction. The good news is that most reactions are mild and self-limiting. So most of the time they go away on their own, but that isn't always the case. And we never know which reactions are going to be much worse. And then a GI response is also really common. So diarrhea, vomiting, nausea, that kind of thing too. Right. This is definitely not a day at the beach. No, it isn't. And I think where sometimes people get confused, though, with food allergies is they they think that, you know, if they get a stomach ache when they eat something, it must be the food. And that just isn't always the case. So those numbers of people with food allergies are really high. Some of that is probably misdiagnosis where people self-diagnose diagnose their allergy and it's really something else. But it should always be taken seriously no matter right. what. You know, we'll get to that in a minute of how the heck you really found out if it's a food allergy and what you should do about it. But this whole thing with when that statistic I started out to say that I always thought that food allergies started in childhood and then you had them the whole, you know, the rest of your life. But I was really surprised about that. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, I know some start in childhood, but can you like as an adult all of a sudden wake up and, you know, have a food allergy to something you never had before? Yeah, you can. You know, it, it's it's less common for adults to develop food allergies. Um, like you said, most of the time it does start in childhood, oftentimes in very young childhood, but it definitely can develop along any time in the life cycle. So, you know, people's bodies change. Our immune systems are dynamic. And I think we used to think this idea like, you know, in childhood, we introduce all the foods and, you know, build up the kid's immune system and then they're good forever. But the reality is that's not true. You know, our bodies are constantly interacting with the environment and our lifestyle can impact it. And there are lots of things we're still discovering about the microbiome and its influence as well. Yes, listen, we did a whole episode of the microbiome. And for uh, listeners and viewers who haven't looked at that, look, fascinate. This is a whole new, we'll probably end up doing another episode on this because the microbiome and its effect on your long-term health is, is emerging and it's getting very, very exciting. Um, you had said that about childhood. Can you grow out of an allergy? Like if you have an, oh, yeah. okay. So there, there could be a happy ending here. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, like I said, the immune system is dynamic. And so it's changing in childhood as well as in adulthood. So some people who are diagnosed with food allergies in childhood definitely outgrow it. Um, it's interesting that the trend for outgrowing food allergies has actually changed over the years and more people are holding on to their allergy longer. So fewer people are actually outgrowing their food allergies, but that still happens. And it really depends on the allergen. So when it comes to like milk and eggs, those are the most common common allergens in infancy and young childhood, but they're also the ones that are most common outgrown, commonly outgrown. Okay. So would, would the commonly outgrown, now would adults have a milk allergy as they get older or that's just typically f for little people? It is, it is uncommon for an adult to develop a, a milk allergy. So the statistics are have previously been as many as 80% of children who develop a milk allergy outgrow it. So that still means that 20% of those children are going to continue to have that milk allergy as they become adults. Okay, you said milk allergy. People may be allergic to milk. What are what are the most like top ten most common food allergens in the U.S.? Yeah, in the U.S., we have uh, have historically had the big eight. Oh, eight. So the okay. big eight are milk, eggs, peanuts, tree nuts, fish, crustacean, shellfish, wheat, and soy. And recently. We added sesame to the list. Yeah, can you tell me about that? Because well, I, I, I actually knew that. But I knew that ad, but what, what the heck is in sesame that would have triggered this? Well, all of these, if you think about like the nuts and the seeds, they have this um, storage protein in them that's very resilient, that can be, um, you know, I don't want to say it's difficult to digest. It's just something that's sort of, I mean, I guess it's difficult for the body to break down. And that's appropriate. That's the plant's way of protecting its future, right? Um, and so it's a protein that's tight and it's difficult to digest. But that's also in some ways, for someone who doesn't have a food allergy, one of the reasons it's so nutritious and so good for us. But with somebody who's got a food allergy, that that protein, those proteins can actually be really problematic. Right, right. So in other words, they eat this and, and the body, like you mentioned, thinks this is like a foreign attack. Like, what the heck is this? And they yes. attack it, but it's really a protein. So they're just, um, they, attack, they, they attack the good guys. That's really what yeah. happened here. You know, you said something about peanuts and, and I did read, you know, I know I know just enough about this to be dangerous, but you did. But, but I have read that now, when it comes to infants, or you tell me that now they're introducing peanuts early in the baby's you know repertoire of foods, and that helps reduce the risk of peanut allergies. Can you explain this? Yeah, that is. Um, so in. Um, in the UK, a study was done called the LEAP trial, which stands for learning early about peanut. And this trial was huge. It was over 600 infants that were enrolled in the study um, sometime between four and 11 months old. And the babies were at high risk for developing a peanut allergy. And what makes someone at high risk is either having severe eczema or having egg allergy or having both. So these infants came in already high risk and they were divided into two groups randomly. And one group did not eat peanut foods for five years, which was the recommendation in that part of the world. And then the other group, right? And even here we were saying, don't, don't eat, feed babies peanut foods. 
Um, but in the other group, they started introducing peanut foods as soon as they were enrolled. So in that first year, sometime between four and 11 months, they started feeding them this peanut foods, safe for babies, peanut foods, not whole peanuts, but peanut foods. And then they followed them until they were five years old. And basically what they discovered was that the infants who had been introduced to peanut foods early had up to 86% reduction in peanut allergies. It was huge. It was huge. It was it was a huge finding and it changed how we feed babies around the world or what the guidelines are for feeding babies around the world. And so just sort of fast forward, now the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease have guidelines on introducing peanut foods that recommend just in line with the LEAP study, you know, starting as early as four to six months in those at-risk babies and then for everybody else starting at around six months and within the first year when other complementary foods are introduced. And even the new dietary guidelines for Americans recommend it for all babies. Oh, that's now, okay, obviously peanuts, you know, six months, we're not talking a full set of teeth here. So like how, how do you administer this to the little six-month-old? Yeah, that's a great question. And we do have to consider safety, right? The first thing I always talk about is like developmental readiness. Is the baby ready for solid foods, right? Because if they're not ready, we don't want to feed them food. But if they're ready, if they're sitting up and they've got good trunk control and um, head control and they're and they're interested in food, you know what that looks like when a baby's like leaning in towards you and they've got their mouth open, they're like chewing along with you, they're trying to grab the spoon. Oh, that's a definitely a ready baby. <laughs> those, <laughs> those babies, you know, we want to start with something else, right? We want to start to make sure that they're ready, like infant cereal or puree of some sort. You know, you can do avocados, you can do any food you want to do that's a lower allergen food. And once you've shown that they're ready to eat and they're doing okay and they're not showing any signs of allergy, then you can introduce peanut foods. And the way that I typically recommend is just use peanut butter. Oh, Two teaspoons of peanut butter. Yeah. And thin it out because even... Right, right. Because you could choke, right? Right, right, exactly. Right, okay, right, right. But if you thin it out with a little breast milk, preferably, or formula or, or warm water, then you create this perfect little slurry. Voila, safe it's for the baby. A, it's a mini a peanut smoothie. I know, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay. And as they get older, you can totally do that. Right. Now, just I'm just curious about this. Do you have to, like, when you first introduce it, do you have to introduce it, like, on a consistent basis so they the body gets used, the baby's body gets used to it? How does this work? Yeah, the recommendation, I always tell people it's early and often. Early and often is how you need to think about the allergens, especially peanut, because it's the one we have the most research for. And there's research on other allergens, and we can talk about that too. But for peanut, the recommendation is early and often. So start at that, depending on the risk. And you know, and if you're in that high-risk category where the baby has severe eczema or already has some allergic predisposition, talk with the pediatrician first just to kind of be on the same page. Um, and then once it's introduced and the child doesn't have a reaction, then it should stay in the diet. So on that first introduction, you, you want to start early in the day so you can observe the baby to make sure they don't have a reaction. And in, in infants, the most common reactions are um, like uh, hives and vomiting. Those are the two to really keep an eye out for. Now, a little bit of spitting up or spitting out, like that's totally normal baby behavior. But if they're projectile vomiting when you give them peanut, that's something you need to pay attention to. If they have a little bit of dots around their mouth, totally normal. That's like contact allergy. But if it spreads off their, over their body or they have it on their chest or stomach or arms, that's something you want to pay attention to and talk with the pediatrician. Um, but let's say it all goes well and, you know, you've introduced it early in the day. You've watched the baby. They seem to love it like most babies do. Then you want to give it again the next day. 
and give it again the next day. And after a few servings, they don't have any problem. Two teaspoons is the goal. That's sort of the goal, you know, the goal amount to try to get in. And you may not do that every time and you may not do that the first time and that's okay. But that's sort of the goal. And then you want to keep it in the diet like, you know, as you do in your own house, like in, well, in my house, we eat peanut butter every day, but you may, you know, like one or one to three times a day, if you're low risk, if you don't have any, you know, if the baby doesn't have eczema or any other issue, then, you know, one or th- one to three times a week is like a good goal, I think. You know, that's interesting. You said that that by introducing this early, it had this dramatic reduction in the risk of peanut allergies. You know, I always say that peanut butter and jelly sandwiches have, have you know, kept American children alive. I mean, I mean, that's really, you know, it's so easy to pack and go to lunch. But yet you've had this problem over the school system that, you know, somebody's allergic and you can't sit next to them and blah, 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 and got, you know, cross-contamination and everything. But if you could introduce that early and reduce this risk, what an easy type of affordable lunch that you could send and your know, parents are busy and, and children like it. That it's a, it's a wonder, that's a wonderful way to reduce that risk. You know, you said something uh, about, um, you know, reactions and, and that sometimes it's a food intolerance or whatever. And, and how do you, where do you go to make sure you have a food allergy versus you self-diagnosing? Because if you self-diagnose, you can end up eliminating a gazillion things from your diet and then end up with a diet that's really not very healthy. So where do you go to, 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 to find out if you, if you really have a food allergy? Yeah, that's a great question. And the research actually shows that 60 to 90% of self-diagnosed food allergies are wrong. So if you're diagnosing yourself, you're probably wrong. You might as well flip a coin, right? Because you're, you, you're not, you're, you, you know, if you don't have the expertise to do this, you're, you're probably not going to do it right. So the first thing I would say is look at your history before you even go down that path. Like, are you having a reaction every time you eat this food? If you're not having a reaction every time you're eating the food, if you can eat it sometimes and you don't react and sometimes you do react, that's probably not a food allergy. It's something else is going on. Doesn't mean you're not having a reaction. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't avoid the food, but it may not be a food allergy, right? So if there's a history of reacting every time you eat the food and you know that it happens, usually with a food allergy, it happens within two hours. So if you eat it and you have a reaction, Really, it usually happens within 30 minutes. It happens very quickly. If it's a true IgE-mediated food allergy, it's going to happen fast. But there are some types of reactions that can take longer. So if you're reacting every time you're eating it, sometime you know in the very near future after you eat a food, then you need to pay attention to that. And then when you go to see a physician, and I always recommend that people see a board-certified allergist for this because they're really the experts. You know, as a dietitian, I can do a lot to educate my patients. I can do a lot to give them resources and support them and provide advocacy. I can um, help them you know, modify their diet and stay healthy and find lots of great delicious foods. I can help them with the history part. But when it comes to diagnosis, I really think that it's important to have a relationship with an allergist because they're the experts and they can prescribe medication if it's necessary. And if there's a treatment and there are some now and on the horizon, then they're going to know who to go to for that. 
So talk to the physician, start with a history. They may want to do blood or skin tests and blood and skin tests are, um, they're adjuncts. They're not diagnostic all by themselves. So the blood and skin tests, like you're going to be shocked by this statistic too. They, they have like a a 60% false positive rate. Oh my goodness gracious. (laughs) Yeah. They're very good. Here we go again. We're flipping a coin. (laughs) I know, right? They're very good at uh, negative di- de- negative diagnosis, right? So if you get a negative diagnosis, you you probably don't have a food allergy. It's very unlikely you're going to have a food allergy if you get a negative value. But if you get a positive value, unless you have a history to go with it, you probably don't have an allergy. So for instance, if I went in and got tested for peanut allergy and it tested positive, well, I don't have a peanut allergy because I eat peanuts all the time and I don't react. But if someone has a reaction and they go in and they have a positive peanut test, then that tells, that's sort of a confirmation. Right, right, right. So that's why you say it's an adjunct. It's something that you have to almost have the symptoms first and then, you know, then get the test back and confirm it. You you said something earlier and, and, and you know, my, my, uh, my antenna went up uh, about asthma. People with asthma are, are more at high risk. And I have to tell you about my son. I'm going to tell you about my son. So my son has asthma. This is when he was little, and he has asthma. And I took him to a board-certified allergist because I have to tell you, one of the scariest things in the whole wide world as a parent is when your child can't breathe. I, 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 I have aged exponentially over this. And before we got him to an allergist and really managed it, because when your child can't breathe, there is nothing you can do. I, it, it, it's just like it's paralyzing. All right. So I brought him there and took the test and we got all these, um, uh, you know, tests. We found out, you know, what he was allergic to and managed the, the um, uh, asthma. But something happened later in life when he became um, a, an older teenager that I want to sh- ask you because you wrote about this, Missy. And I was shocked when I read it because when he first said this to me, I said, what? No, this is all in your head. So what would happen, Miss Sherry, is that he would eat an apple and he would, look, you're shaking your head. You already know what I'm saying. And, and he would get this like fuzzy, tingling thing in his mouth, itchiness in his mouth, back the throat. And I would say to him, this is not a food allergy because I'm a registered dietitian and I went to all this schooling and I know that most allergens are all protein-based. So where the heck is the protein in the apple? It can't be. This is all in your head. Well, doofus mama found this out. So can you explain to everybody why my son is correct and I am wrong? <laughs> yes. So this is actually called oral allergy syndrome or or uh, pollen food allergy syndrome. Those sort of interchangeable names. And, you know, there's some dis- some disagreement about whether it's a true food allergy or not. But the reality is that some people do have these kinds of reactions. The good news is they're typically um, only in the mouth. So it might be itchiness, tingling, swelling in the mouth and the tongue, a little bit maybe in the throat, but it doesn't cause anaphylaxis. So that's the good news. Um, what's happening is a cross reactivity. So I would guess, and you don't have to say this, but I would guess your son probably has lots of environmental allergies. People who have environmental allergies, particularly ragweed or pollen allergies during the spring season and the fall season, those people are more likely to have allergies. Yeah. And you know, you know, you know, I live in the New England. I live in New England. Yeah. So hello, why yeah. don't we come to Allergy um, uh, USA <laughs> right here? So I mean, that was a great place to raise them, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> Well, and 
you know, birch allergy, birch pollen allergy cross reacts with apples. So that's very, that's probably the one that's most common and most well known. And so the ways to handle that, and some people will react to other foods as well. So it could be something like, um, like, Oh gosh, it just went out of my brain. Oh, carrots, carrots, raw carrots is another one that I hear a lot. And so the way you handle it is you cook it, you know, so you peel it and you can cook it and then you can eat it. Most people don't have any reaction once it's cooked because it denatures the protein. So it changes the protein in the cooking and then it can be eaten without problems. Oh, how smart. Of course that does. If heat will denature it in this way, it's no longer the protein is broken down to the amino acids with an, which are not allergenic. That is so fascinating. All right, so, so my, so... I, I get it. So I can't give my son an apple. I can give him apple pie yes. or baked apple. Yeah. yeah. Or sauteed that. apples with a little butter and cinnamon. <laughs> there and you he go. might be okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I also read, and this is interesting, uh, about the, the level of stress this causes a lot of people, especially you, th- those that are, have really serious reactions where they may have to bring along an EpiPen because they're going to have such a reaction where they, they, they can't breathe and airways close up. And I read a, a recent article that this was a big issue during the pandemic when a lot of people were ordering takeout and having it delivered. And can you explain why that would be you know, problematic. Yeah. And this was a huge issue during the pandemic. And and really, it's an issue. So if you think about sort of, you know, go back to what it was like during that, the, the peak of that time, right? You know, grocery stores were empty, you know, shelves were bare, you know, we, we were able to access some food if you were in a good place, like if you're in a metro area, and you had lots of, you know, options, you could choose something else, right? So if you couldn't find your favorite brand, you just bought a different brand, or you bought what you could find, or you substituted this or that for if you couldn't find something. But when you have a food allergy, you're already restricted, right? You already can't choose from everything available on the shelf. You already have to choose alternatives. And if those alternatives are not available, you may be out of luck in a whole category of foods, especially for people who have multiple food allergies, right? If you're restricting wheat and soy and you're trying to find foods that you know, don't contain wheat and soy, but those foods are not available, you're in trouble, you know? And so that happened to a lot of people. And also there was the panic buying, right? So people bought a lot of things that were shelf stable, lower allergen kinds of foods that, you know, some people with food allergies really depend on those foods, but they were suddenly not available. So that was one thing. Access was really hard. Um, And were you going to ask a question? No, I was just going to say that, you know, and I can see that if you get used to like one brand of a cereal, because you know, they, it's free of whatever you want to avoid. And then it, you can't get it and you get, you know, brand X and you got to go back and figure out if brand X were, I can see why that could be a real problem. And, and, you know, the same things in in restaurants. I've been out with people who have like shellfish allergy to which they are going to have a a wicked reaction. And they're like interrogating the staff. Yeah, I I can't have shrimp. Uh, Is, when you make my meal, is it on, is there any shrimp in the, in the same pot? Is there any shrimp near the meal you're making? Like, it's like an interrogation and, and rightfully so, because that's a very frightening reaction. So you can only imagine like if things being delivered, that you can't ask those questions. 
Right. Absolutely. And and it made it, so if you're doing online delivery of, let's just say groceries, you can't read every label on your own. It's not as easy. And there's no guarantee that the person who's doing the picking for you knows what to look for. So that was one part. And then the restaurant issue was a whole other ball of wax, right? So restaurant dining can already be a challenge for people with a food allergy, right? Because you, when you eat out anywhere where someone else is preparing your food, you're, you're, you could be literally putting your life in their hands, right? You have to trust that they understand the severity of the allergy, that they understand what foods you can't eat, that they know the procedure in the kitchen, and they're ensuring that there's no cross-contact, you know, that you're really trusting them to do what is necessary to make that food safe for you. So that's always a normal issue. But during the pandemic, it became even bigger, it'd be even bigger issue because staffing was a huge issue for restaurants, right? I mean, people just, there was, there's always been a lot of turnover in restaurants, which makes it really challenging challenging to keep people well-trained. But when you looked at what happened in the pandemic, people didn't come to work or they got sick or they died, you know? And so restaurants were struggling with having the right people and having enough people. And they had issues with supply chain, which we're still dealing with now. So they had supply chain issues and they had to make substitutions. They had to, you know, make changes on their menus. And it was reasonable to think that it could happen and people might not even know that it was happening, right? So it could be happening in the back of the house and the person taking your order on the phone has no idea that there's a substitution that's happening and they may think a food is safe, but it might not be. So it was a really scary time for people with food allergies and for everyone, but especially if you if you really had no control over your food at all, it really became frightening. And you know, I want to, I just want to stress that, that when you're with somebody, you're dining out with somebody or somebody comes over that understand their fear. I mean, they're living this all the time checking. So be respectful that they, you know, want to uh, make sure that they are comfortable. And I know some people uh, that will go out to a gathering and will not eat there. Because they're they just want to enjoy themselves and they and, and they have to relax and enjoy themselves and they're afraid that that fear is so overwhelming that they'd rather just not eat and enjoy themselves and then go home and eat and you know whatever and and to understand that too that if someone has that reaction let them you know it's all about what makes them feel comfortable well let me tell you Miss Sherry this has been really enlightening um, and really fascinating and again not aware of how prevalent this was and and I thought it was just those top allergens and now I got to go home and call my son and apologize to him over and over again. <laughs> Here comes another gift I have to send him. So I want to thank you so, so, so much for sharing your wisdom, wisdom about food allergies. And most importantly, thank you for coming on Spot On. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. Thank you for listening to Spot On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This way you'll get every new episode every week. And by the way, leave us a nice review. And can you also like us on our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes? Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Blake. And oh, by the way, can you send this episode to five of your friends? Do I ask a lot of you? <laughs>